Chapter 8 of Silianet's Legends by Henry James Whitfeld. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Briar. This morning I went on an excursion to Briar. It is one of the inhabited islands lying between Tresco, to which it is joined by the sands at low water, and Samson. Probably all three were formerly one, for, as I have observed elsewhere, the space now covered by the sea is full of walls and enclosures. The fate of St. Mary's has clearly been anticipated here. The distance between the quay at Hewtown and Oliver Cromwell's castle, which is built in the channel parting Briar from Tresco, and on the shores of the latter, is just three miles. So wide is the fine pool of St. Mary's, I made the passage in about twenty minutes under sail with a stiff breeze. I had a six-oared gig that literally flew over the waves. The craft of this kind here are proverbially good, and ours formed no exception to the rule. On our return, with a jumping sea and the wind dead ahead, our six stout islanders did the whole space from point to point in three quarters of an hour without shipping a drop of water. The men were proud of their boat, but they said that there was another in the island worth two of her. Briar contains at the present time 30 families and 119 inhabitants. Its average length is about a mile and a half, its breadth scarcely half a mile. The ground rises abruptly in every part from the shore, into which the sea is visibly eating its way. The whole of Briar consists only of 330 acres, a great deal of which is still uncultivated. To the east of the declivity, called Guayle Hill, from the opposite islet of that name, is a pool of fresh water covering two or three acres. Footnote. This is a peculiarity in the local nomenclature. Samson Hill of Briar is the one in Briar opposite Samson. Briar Hill in Samson, or of Samson, is so-called for a similar reason. Footnote ends. On the northwest side is a pretty spring, said to be useful for medicinal purposes. It is so situated under the cliff that the sun never shines upon it. The steep hill opposite Samson is named from it Samson Hill, and has, or rather had, on its summit three barrows, parts of which have been removed. These, as far as I could learn, are all the objects of interest to be seen, and they do not present a very varied list. But the resources of nature are less limited, and on a far greater scale. Her treasure caves and cells need no fostering hand to draw forth or to develop them. Of the six inhabited islands, none is more full of stern and wild beauty than Briar, and though every khan and rock and headland has its name, to enumerate them would be only to present to the eye a list of unmeaning appellations, uncouth as the scenes to which they are applied, and to our ears as dead as the language of the names they bear, which with its children has passed away for ever. The gap between historical and mythic times, between the bright sunlight and the shadowy poetry of the mountain mist, is shown clearly in the names of places here. These islands, whether formerly of greater or of less extent, were once thickly peopled. The graves rise up in witness of this fact. Every point and khan has its distinct appellation. There is not a solitary hill nor a grey tomb which has not received the baptism of one of those ancient words which have in them so much beauty and expression, but not one of those words belongs to an era within the memory of man. The fount from which they were named is as unknown as the lips that christened them. The antique dweller on Menalto and Mincalo felt the influence of this genial climate, 
and the spirit in his heart found utterance in his tongue, and so, in the rich varieties of his forgotten vocabulary, he discovered those terms which we now admire. But they are all distant and unreal as a dream. To reach them, we must leap over a gulf, not of years, but of centuries. The Phoenician, the Greek, the Roman, the men of the Dark Ages, have left no trace of their language. We do not recognise their presence by one phrase that sounds to our ears like a familiar friend. The Briton only, with his druid, comes before us and shows us the relics of his religion and bids us confess the accents of his tongue and claims these domains for his own. The fact is singular, but stripped of all colouring, it is true. When we leave the words of a language that is mythological, we come to those of today, there is no interval, there is no resting place for thought nor for speculation between us and our voragious. When we quit the Briton, we come to Banfield and Toll and Leg, we leave Cunnabellan, and we find ourselves with today. There is, in the hands of the proprietor, a terrier of the islands of the time of the Commonwealth, and there are in it, I think, only three names extant here at the present time. Probably a change so rapid and so sweeping is without parallel. On landing, I walked up the beach and entered two houses belonging to the fishermen. Their extreme comfort struck me forcibly. The kitchen of the one in which I remained for a short time was furnished with every requisite, and the sitting-room was filled with glass and china, and even with some humble attempts at ornament. There were, in a corner cupboard, several antique silver spoons. The dress of the host and his wife was good and clean. I may say, en passant, that Woodley's account of the extreme poverty of the Salonians, if in his time it were correct, is now no longer. On every side are palpable evidences of prosperity and well-doing. From all I hear, however, this state of things is of no long standing. The change has been wrought in the last few years, but it seems likely to be permanent, as it is complete. When I quitted the cottage, I was joined by a respectable man who stated that he was a farmer and offered to accompany me on my walk. We went first in the direction of the little church, built at an expense of £250, by the Society for Promoting the Erection and Enlargement of Churches. There is a meeting-house on the hill above, but it is now shut up. Services performed here by the curate from Tresco, who crosses from thence in a boat every Sunday afternoon. A little further on is the Coast Guard Station. Following the road, we ascended the hill, which is bold and steep. Most of the ground is covered with firs and affords pasture to a few mountain ponies and sheep, as well as some crossbred Alderney cows. In the sheltered nooks are always planted early potatoes, which are bought up at a price varying from sixpence a pound to one pound five shillings a bushel, and are sent to Covent Garden Market. Footnote, the price this year was one pound fifteen shillings per bushel. Footnote ends. They form the chief reliance of the people, and great distress was caused by their failure in the disastrous years of the potato disease. The land is of excellent quality, and lets at from one to two pounds per acre. I saw a good deal trenched with seaweed for manure, and prepared thus for sowing barley, which is generally done in the first week in April. We ascended the hill, while I made these observations, until we gained a considerable altitude, and then paused to look around. The scene was indeed strikingly magnificent. Facing us was Hewtown, lower as Venice in its lagoons. Below was the Pool of St. Mary's, in whose anchorage a whole navy might ride in safety. To the left was St. Martin, and nearer us, on the same side, Tresco, its abbey gleaming in the sun, its pool sleeping like a sheet of molten silver, 
and its grounds forming a picturesque contrast to the sterile solitude around. On our extreme right was St. Agnes, surrounded by its archipelago of rocks, and nearer still, Samson, the population of which is fast being removed, as opportunities offer, to St. Mary's, only three or four families now remaining on the island. Add to this combination of all that is simply grand in art and in nature, a blue sky, a breeze just sufficient to ripple the surface of the bay, and to produce what Ischlis calls its countless smiles, a sea almost as azure as that of the Mediterranean, with sands dazzlingly white, and whiter still, by contrast with the objects around, and there is a picture before you which it would be difficult to equal and impossible to surpass. My companion told me that near where we were standing, he once broke with the plough into a barrow. He found there ten or a dozen pots or jars full of a kind of gritty dust, exhaling a very fetid odour. The whole earth around was unctuous and black and smelt unpleasantly. As soon as the atmosphere was admitted, the vessels mouldered away and no relic of them was left. The islands abound in remains of this kind, giving indisputable evidence of the existence heretofore of a far more numerous population than of late years, as do the circles and cromlechs and kissed veins and menhirs, for where there were so many temples, there must have been both priests and worshippers. I have been much surprised, however, at the almost total absence of traditionary tales, both here and in Cornwall, and at the little interest seemingly taken by the natives in their antiquities. Ask one of them the history of a ruin, and in most cases his reply will be, like that of Lord Melbourne when Prime Minister, I am sure I don't know, though he seldom adds, but I'll ask. As we turned to descend the hill, a bend in the road brought us opposite to Tresco, separated from Briar by Grimsby, or Grimsey, Channel. Cromwell's castle lay before us. My guide told me that the ruins on the hill above were the remains of a still more ancient fortress, which was battered down by Cromwell, who then built the tower below to command the passage. The protector, however, was never here. In 1651, Sir John Grenville, after a gallant defence, surrendered the islands to the parliamentary troops under Sir George Ayscough and Admiral Blake, Prince Charles having previously resided here for some time. It is singular how the reputation of the great Puritan warrior is always connected with gloom and destruction, though his civil government was wise and firm. It was not so with Napoleon. He created everywhere and laid the foundation of the present greatness of France, but Cromwell is always remembered as a destroyer. To his hand was attributed all the ruin worked during the civil wars, even in places which he never visited. You go to a cathedral and are told that he battered it down, though he was warring far away. You see a wide breach in a decayed curtain, and his tremendous name is connected with the storming of the place. You are shown a relic of him. It is a basket-hilted sword, or a buff-coat, or a half-pipe. His associations are all of strife. He is the embodied actor of the rebellion. His memory is indeed the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. In the tale of those bloody fights, when the wounded of the cavaliers were butchered by those who boasted that they did not the Lord's work negligently, his name is only mentioned in history and legend as the one that smote and spared not. The Saracen mother that frightened her spoiled child and the Saracen rider that threatened his horse with the awful name of Richard acted exactly as my guide of today acted when he pointed to the fortalice below us as it lay gloomily on the dim shore and told me that Cromwell built it from the ruins he himself had made. The scene was suitable to the tale. The shadows of the evening were coming down fast, 
St. Mary's Pool was vanishing from the eye. The wind set sullenly up Grimsby Channel and howled around the decayed walls of the fort. The only sound heard was the scream of the seabirds as they winged their way back to the cliffs of the off-isles. The spirit of the old protector might have brooded over the castle that bore his name. As I gazed, it faded slowly from my sight and was no longer seen. I wished my guide good night and returned in silence to my boat. End of chapter 8. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.